you're recording. Hey guys, <laughs> that doesn't sound like you. <laughs> hey guys, welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, not the Cordial Catholic. But today I am joined by Kay Albert Little of the Cordial Catholic. Keith, what are we doing today? I don't even understand how you have my merch because I don't have any merch. Yet you are there wearing my shirt and it looks great. So I want to know where I can get one of those, Austin. That sounds well, fantastic. Well, let, let me tell you. You just go to teespring.com slash stores slash gospel simplicity, <laughs> and you can get your very own Cordial Catholic t-shirt. And, you know, I'm going to make a special deal that a portion of the proceeds today will go to the fantastic co- podcast, The Cordial Catholic, r- run by my friend <laughs> Kay Albert Little. So get yours today before they sell out. <laughs> and thanks to the patrons and merch buyers of the show. The pa- Patrons like Keith. Thanks, Keith, for your support. <laughs> but seriously, thank you so much to our patron subscribers and merch buyers who make this possible. Keith, what are they about to see in this video? This is going to be a, a real experiment. Uh, so I contacted you, Austin, a while back to say, do you want to do a crazy show? And of course you said yes, because you say yes to everything I ask you to do, uh, including, you know what? I didn't ask you to wear that shirt, so I shouldn't say that. You do things even that don't... I don't even ask you to do certain things you do them anyway. This show is a fantastic collaboration between the, the, the two of us in the background, but two much greater minds. Joe Heschmeyer, who's written the fantastic Bope. Uh, <laughs> this has to be an outtake. I, oh, this, can't, this can't be serious. I'm sorry. I said Bope. I said Bope. <laughs> guys thank you so much for being here i am so grateful for you and i think you're really going to enjoy this episode with dr gavin ortland and joe heschmeyer i hope you enjoy it half as much as keith and i did and here it is hey guys welcome to this special crossover uh collaborative edition uh, gospel simplicity, the cordial Catholic, this awesome conversation on being deep in history. I am very pleased to welcome our two guests uh, this week. Previously a litigator in Washington, D.C., and a seminarian for the Archdiocese of Kansas, Joe Heschmeyer now works as an instructor for the Holy Family Institute of Faith, uh, Holy Family School of Faith Institute. <laughs> He has a degree in theology from the Typical University of St. Thomas Aquinas in Rome, and his writings have appeared in Catholic Answers Magazine, The Washington Times, Word on Fire, First Things, and Strange Notions. He co-hosts the Catholic Podcast Weekly and has run the wonderful blog Shameless Popery since 2009. Maybe most recently, Joe has written what my evangelical co-host Austin has called the best work of Catholic apologetics that he has read, Pope Peter Defending the Church's Most Distinctive Doctrine, out from Catholic Answers Press. Joe, welcome to my show. Welcome to Austin's YouTube channel. And, well, thanks for joining us in this crazy, crazy collaboration. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having us on. I shouldn't have tried to say crazy collaboration because that was difficult for me to try and pronounce. Welcome, nonetheless. Uh, Dr. Gavin Ortland also joins us. He is the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Ojai, California. He has a PhD from Fuller Theological Seminary in, histo- in Historical Theology, an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary, and is the author of, I'm told, at least 100 books in the last couple of years alone, <laughs> including Theological Retrieval for Evangelicals, Why We Need, to Put, Why we need Our Past to Have a Future. 
retrieving Augustine's Doctrine of Creation, Ancient Wisdom for Current Controversy, and Anselm's Pursuit of Joy, a commentary on the Proslogian from a little place called Catholic University of America Press. Gavin's got a cracking YouTube channel called Truth Unites, and where he's he's posting some truly awesome uh, material on a whole range of different topics, including some of the most thoughtful, articulate, and dare I say, cordial responses or rebuttals to some of the most important Catholic doctrines and dogmas. Gavin, I'm so excited that you could join us in this awesome discussion. Welcome and hello. Thanks so much for setting this up, guys. I've been looking forward to it. <laughs> this is going to be great. Yeah, we have been super excited about this, and I'm so excited to have you guys here. I'm excited to be doing another episode with you, Keith. And to set this up, today we're going to be talking about being deep in history. There's that famous quote by uh, Cardinal John Henry Newman about to be deep in history is to, be see- is to cease to be Protestant. And to set this up, I just wanted to ask both of you, why is it important to be deep in history? What's at stake here? Gavin, you want to take the first crack? Sure, I'll, I'll go. I'll make the mistakes, and then you can correct me. Uh, yeah, I would say um, there's there's probably lots of reasons that we could think of. Just two that come to my mind. One would be that as human beings, we're profoundly affected by what has come before us, and no matter who you are, no matter where you live, you know we're not self-made. So the only alternative to self-consciously studying history and figuring out how that affects us today is just to be um, unconsciously affected by history. And so um, there's a lot of value in considering how, you know, what are the ways that I think, and this has actually just personally been such a helpful thing for me in studying historical theology of just challenging the assumptions of modernity and how many things that I didn't realize kind of modern Western ways of thinking had gotten into my mind. And I didn't realize that until you read someone from a different culture. So sometimes it's kind of like studying abroad or traveling or something like that. It just exposes you to different ways of of thinking and can be a really good humbling thing. And then a second thing I would say is just as as Christians, and obviously we'll talk about some of the differences between Catholics and Protestants, but there's a lot we have in common too. And I would say the basic appeal that um, I would make on this is something we really have in common, and that is when we have a relationship with Christ, we're not just coming into a personal relationship with him, but we're coming into this huge tradition. You know, you think of Cain and Abel at the beginning of the Bible, and there's these two pathways, and it's a wonderful thing to be able to offer people in our culture this sense of belonging that I think so many people are aching for. You know, there's such a sense of 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 loneliness, I think, in modernity. So many people have this sense of just lacking a context to make sense of life. And one of the wonderful uh, privileges we have as followers of Jesus is to say to people, there is an answer to that. There is a, a home that you can uh, come into. And the church is that wonderful tradition that we belong to. And obviously, there's differences in how that's understood, but there's also a common foundation, I think. So those would be two answers that I would give, and I'm looking forward to this discussion, and we can keep pressing into that. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful answer. I, I would agree with everything you just said. Um, I would add maybe a couple things just for um, the sake of thoroughness, maybe, right? 
Uh, like when we're trying to understand what some part of the Bible means, like if you're confused about a passage in the Old Testament, it's pretty much indispensable to know something about the life of Israel. Like how was this understood by the Israelites at the time? How was it understood kind of down through the ages in Israel? So too, though, if we want to understand some part of the New Testament, it seems like we really need to understand the life of the people of God, the church, you know, like how was this understood by the earliest Christians? How was it understood down through the ages? Um, but just to kind of capitalize on something that you said, Gavin, like every age has its own cultural blind spots. Like in the Middle Ages, for instance, a lot of people just kind of assumed dueling was okay, even though it like, from our perspective, like obviously wasn't. It's not? And, yeah, exactly. This was our second choice for how to approach this debate. <laughs> uh, so, you know, like every every culture, every age, every, you know, every individual has, you know, some set of blind spots. And you can often see them from the perspective of history. But that also means like we've got our blind spots and reading something from a different culture, a different time and different place itself can be really important. But I, I, maybe if I can just give a couple other reasons, you know, G.K. Chesterton talks about tradition as the democracy of the dead. It's this idea that like we need to have the humility to realize I don't have it all figured out. My age doesn't have it all figured out. My party doesn't have it all figured out. My culture, my local church, we might all have blind spots. And so we need to listen to that that broader kind of chorus of voices. Uh, but there's also that kind of interpretive question. I, I hinted at that a second ago. You know, like uh, I love using American legal examples uh, whenever I'm talking to Keith because they're they're as inaccessible as I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> like in the U.S., like bad judges interpret the Constitution as kind of a standalone document radically detached from its history. It's how you get people saying the Constitution supports abortion or whatever. You know, we don't have to go down too far in any of those kind of examples. Um, but that same kind of uh, historically a historical, if you will, kind of way. Uh, is how a lot of people approach the Bible. And then you get them saying kind of crazy things about what they say the Bible does or doesn't say. And so it's probably not a coincidence that the people who are like good originalists on the Supreme Court, you know, Amy Coney Barrett, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, the late Antonin Scalia, all of them were also conservative Catholics. And they were using the same methodology approaching the Constitution and the Bible. And I think that gives you, in both cases, the most accurate sense of like, what did this mean at the time these words were said? What did this mean at the time it was uttered rather than having it be like a living document uh, where the meaning can change? Um, yeah, I guess I'd just say that. Like Christianity is a, it's a historical religion. It's not just a collection of myths. It's not just a collection of proverbs. And as such, uh, the history actually matters. It's, it's part of what we say we believe in. If I could just give kind of an example, just in agreement with what Joe just said there, just personally, how this has played out for me. Um, my favorite theologian is Anselm. So, and I've just absolutely uh, loved everything I've learned from him. And he has a whole book trying to address the question of how can God forgive? And I remember just, it, it just dawned on me one day that that's a sort of opposite question from what I just assumed was the question that we should be asking, which is, why doesn't God always forgive? You know, that's one of the big objections to faith in the modern West is why doesn't, you know, why would there be a hell? Why would there be judgment? How could a loving God send people to hell? And it's just interesting that Anselm was not only having a different answer to that question, he had a different question it, itself. And I remember that when that dawned upon me, it helped me realize, wow, how many other things have I just assumed that reading someone from a pre-modern context can kind of expose those assumptions a little bit? Sorry to jump in there, but. 
Oh, that's beautiful. I love that example. I, I had a similar thing with the Psalms where it wasn't, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? Half the time, the psalmist is complaining, like, why do good things happen to bad people? And I just love the fact that the questions are different. And so if we're expecting them to be asking the same questions we're asking now, there's a good chance we're not being as faithful to it. And I think this is probably going to be a developing theme in this conversation, like knowing uh, how to read the church fathers, how to read the early Christians, and and figure out what questions they're asking instead of assuming they're asking the same questions or or making the same assumptions we are. Mm. So let's push a little deeper then here, because this this quote Austin brought up, right, is talking about being deep in history. But we all know that St. John Henry Newman's, the rest of his quote was, is to be seen to be Protestant, is the rest of that. So uh, he's a famous convert, of course, uh, and, and he asserts that to be deep in history, but you, you can't be Protestant anymore, right? And so from my perspective, as an evangelical convert to Catholicism, this was certainly true for me. I mean, it's almost a trope sometimes. The number of converts like myself who've written blog articles and, and whatnot on this exact quote, right? And I have my own out there somewhere. But I was struggling in my evangelical faith to find agreement amongst my fellow believers, to find a hermeneutic that made sense of the Bible when so many of us couldn't dis- couldn't agree in this interpretation, right? And I found the early church, I found history, and I found the Protestant worldview to be less and less historical the deeper and deeper I went. So this is this is Newman's quote, right? To be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. So I want to ask you first, Joe, maybe, and then Gavin afterwards, Joe, why is Newman right? Why does it? Why does being deep in history cease to kind of make somebody a Protestant? Yeah. So I mean, part of it, I guess, part of the answer is going to be Newman's own story, right? Like he starts out as an Anglican who is trying to present Anglicanism as kind of a middle way that captures the best of both Catholicism and Protestantism. And his idea is like, look, with the virtues, for instance, if you go too far in one direction or the other, you're probably in a vice. Like the virtue is in the middle. Aristotle talks about this, right? Uh, Like if you're overeating or undereating, that's not right. Um, And so he had kind of the same assumption uh, coming into theology. But when he starts really doing the heavy lifting, when he starts really getting into the history of different doctrinal debates, he sees that there's like all these instances where the middle ground is actually wrong too. So for instance, in the Pelagian controversy, you got the Catholics on one side, you got the Pelagians on the other side, you got the semi-Pelagians in the middle. But the right answer wasn't in the middle. It was actually on the side of the Catholic church. And you see this kind of thing actually time and time again, uh, where it isn't just like a coincidence the Catholic church is right. You'll have like, for instance, like St. Optatus of Milevus in the 300s before Augustine, is writing about how, well, if you want to know what the right answer is, uh, look to the Church of Rome. Like, look to the Church, and and not just anybody in Rome, but the one where they actually have, like, the relics of St. Peter and Paul, and they celebrate on their tombs, and, like, that's the Church you need to listen to. That Church always has the right answer. And so, if you're a Protestant, you in, like you basically have a couple options. One is to kind of go in the route of saying, like, oh, maybe one of these heretical sects is right, but mainstream Protestants don't believe in like the Baga Mills or the Pelagians or any of these, like these guys are, history has not been kind to them from either a Catholic or a Protestant perspective. But the other one is to be like, wow, the Roman Catholic church was right a remarkable number of times until the reformation. And like, it's so weird that right when like my teachings come up for the first time, that's when they like strike out for the first time. And I think Newman's point is like, that doesn't seem that plausible. Right. Um, But more than that, I mentioned earlier, like Christianity is a historical religion that isn't just like history prior to Easter, 
There are also like a set of historical prophecies made in the New Testament. So to give a few, Jesus' last words in the Gospel of Matthew are, Lo, I'm with you always to the close of the age. Uh, the Virgin Mary in Luke 2 prophesies that all generations will call her blessed. Jesus prays at the Last Supper for future disciples to always be one in John 17. And of course, Christ promises to Peter in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. So whenever we're looking at history, we should expect to find that Christ is present protecting the church. The gates of hell aren't overcoming it. Uh, there's a visible church, which we're supposed to be a part of. And there's proper Marian devotion going on because Mary's inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to make this promise. So that's true of the first century. It's true of the sixth century, the 11th and the, and the 21st and, and the 31st, right? Like these are the things we can always expect to find if the promises God makes in the New Testament are true. So we should be able to identify with the, the Christianity of history because the Christianity that's still in the hands of God. And so Newman goes on to say in the same passage that you're talking about there, that the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. And he even argues that Protestants know it. Like no Protestant is saying like the medieval church looked Protestant. And most Protestants, once they start studying the church fathers, don't actually say the church fathers are Protestant. They just say on certain points, certain fathers at certain times agree with Protestantism, which is a pretty different claim. Um, I actually, in my book, I quote Gavin on page 20, like 211, because he, I think he rightly calls Protestants out for a sort of uh, Swiss cheese history. I'm badly paraphrasing you here, Gavin. Because it kind of jumps from St. Paul to St. Augustine and then skips more than a millennium uh, to Luther. And if, if you actually believe that the Christians in the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th century are Protestant, there should be a ton of these like Protestant heroes being held up uh, as as models of Protestant Christianity. And and of course, that isn't true. And anyone studying the Middle Ages will, will tell you that isn't true in, in the East or the West. And so I think that like just the reaction Protestant Christianity has like, in general had uh, to history kind of speaks to the truth of, of Newman's claim that history isn't on the side of, of the truth of Protestantism. Gavin, you would disagree cordially as we do on this super crossover episode, because you're deep in history. I mean, you, you have a PhD in historical theology from an evangelical seminary. Why would you argue that being deep in history doesn't require you to cease being partisan? Yeah, I was going to say, I know it's going to be a shock to you guys that I don't agree with Newman on this one. So try to hold, <laughs> hold your amazements. But, and I, I will try to disagree cordially. That's really important to me in these conversations. I love the spirit you guys set in that way. You guys are great models of that. So, But I also want to be clear and kind of speak from a genuine concern of just how I do feel that Protestantism is sometimes unfairly caricatured and, and misrepresented. And I mean, one of the great challenges is, of course, Protestantism is not a church. It's a descriptor term for an, a number of different church traditions. So when we're comparing Catholicism and Protestantism, we're already at, with apples and oranges. But I would say about Newman, um, first of all, and I have scoured that essay on the development of doctrine over and over again. And it's there's a number of things that I think we should ask, what did he mean by this statement in order to know, do we agree with the statement? So first of all, what does it mean by Protestant? Because immediately prior in this passage, he has referenced the popular level religion of England in his day. 
Immediately after a few paragraphs, he distinguishes Protestantism and Anglicanism as two separate mutually exclusive alternatives. So I actually think that Newman is not using the word Protestant in terms of what we would probably think. Uh, that is, all the Protestant traditions from all times, or Protestantism as such. Another point of ambiguity that's probably worth kind of posing is, does he mean this in a descriptive sense or in a normative sense? In other words, is he saying, as a matter of fact, there are none, you know, <laughs> Protestants who are deep in history just don't exist. Or is he saying uh, they shouldn't be? If they're deep in history, that will incline them not to be Protestant. And I think he's actually saying both, because in the context, right before, he's basically saying we don't have any, so the immediately preceding sentence is, that we don't have any um, good church historians except for Gibbon, who is a non-believer. And, and then he just says this, and then he moves on to the next section. And to the extent that he means it in a descriptive sense, I regard what he's saying as kind of a derogatory caricature. It's just a sociological fact that there are Protestants who are good historians. And it kind of comes across in the way when uh, Protestants say, oh, Catholics don't really love the Bible. It's just not true. And it's such a blatant stereotype. So, you know, as we're trying to have these cordial conversations, I regard one of the ways we can push into that is really careful listening to try to slough off any of those caricatures that may persist that we all have. And believe me, look, I, it's a humbling process for me with my YouTube channel. I look back on my videos and I'm always like, you know, in that video, I did better than in that one. <laughs> and, you know, it, you always, uh, it, it's a learning process. And my camera will come back on just in a second here. Sorry to keep you guys in suspense there. Um, but yeah, so, so I mean, I, this process is ongoing for that we want to lose caricatures and represent each tradition at its absolute best. Um, and the fact is that there are Protestants who are deep in history. And if someone isn't even willing to grant that point, then it's, uh, we're, I feel like we're not pushing into that territory where the conversation can get ahead into more of a respectful kind of treating each tradition at its, at its best. Now, if he, if he meant it in a normative way, um, here's why I would find that less outlandish, but still I would disagree. And basically, I would just make the claim, and this is where I would see it differently from Joe, that the old classical Protestant idea that along the development of church history, amidst all the good that is also happening, there are various accretions and aberrations and declensions and problems that come into the picture, and we're trying to go back before those and um, remove the errors. And I, I find that to be a very plausible and eminently sensible appeal. You know, Calvin, in the context of a number of disputes, basically said, all we're trying to do is go back to the purity of the fourth century. When the reformers were charged with the charge of novelty, the, the counter-reformation was saying, you guys are new, we're old. Okay, And the response to that wasn't, yeah, so what? We have sola scriptura. The response to that was, no, we're even more ancient. And right or wrong, I mean, so in other words, it would be a more sensible argument, I think, if Newman was to say Protestants are making errors in the way they interpret church history. Um, but to just say, as he says, I, I regard it as kind of a snarky statement. He just says to be uh, deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. And then elsewhere, he just says, you don't even need to argue for that. It's just obvious. 
And, um, you know, what the Protestants have always said is, look, and I, you know, so in my own research, I've been reflecting upon the Marian dogmas and the papacy. And and um, my claim would be that these things develop and they're not representative of the beliefs of the earliest Christians in church history. Now, right or wrong. And, you, you know, this is the classic Protestant claim. So Calvin listed 12 examples at the beginning of his prefatory letter to King Francis from eating meat during Lent to ministerial celibacy and on and on, all these different examples, quoting the fathers and saying, um, you're not in line with, with them. And that's where I would say, you know, to Joe's point that the Protestant church doesn't look like the early church or the medieval church. I'd say in many respects, of course, I would say also neither does the Catholic church. I think all of the major representations of Christendom today have developed and the question is, what are our rules for adjudicating those developments? And um, the reason I, just to lay things out here, because I, I know we're just diving right into it, I guess, so tried to be you know, productive here, and I'll, I'll probably pause in a second so I don't go on too long, but when I think about the ultimate root issue that's a point of divergence between us as Catholics and Protestant Christians, and I'm honored to be talking to you guys. I respect you guys, and this is this is all great. But the the point of the main point that I would see would be the issue of the papacy, because that gets at the issues of authority. So if only we had someone here who'd written a book on the papacy, <laughs> we would be in great. No, no. Uh, so I, I'm really excited to, for Joe to share his thoughts on on this as we go forward. But it, because the very means of adjudicating these historical developments for a Catholic i.e. the papacy, seems to me to be itself a development. Um, I, I don't have confidence in that system of, of doctrine. And so um, whatever is right and wrong here on the Protestant side, the one thing I think is not fair is to say Protestants don't care about church history, or if you are deep in history, it will automatically discourage you from being a Protestant. I would think the more respectful debate would need to get beyond what Newman is saying and get into are Protestants right or wrong in their historical appeal? Because the way Newman puts it, and it is interesting, I mean, he said that while he was, of course, still an Anglican. He had not been received into the church yet, and it was incredibly controversial among Roman Catholic Christians at that time. And this statement is wielded over and over again uh, in ways that I think are contrary to what Newman actually meant by it. So uh, I, I do find, sorry if I'm putting this too strong, <laughs> but I do find this, this Newman quip is something we kind of need to put to bed or at least quote it in accuracy with what he meant in the larger context of that essay. And then we can hopefully get into the deeper issues, which is basically let's dive into church history and let's look at these things and let's look at those early centuries of the church when the different beliefs and doctrines come into view. So that's a little bit about how I think about Newman, not to be too harsh. You know, there's there's an example that may uh, flesh this out a little more. And it's mentioned in the biography of Edmund Campion that Evelyn Waugh has, that um, when Campion is studying to become an Anglican priest, he starts reading the Church Fathers and is shocked at how Catholic they sound. Um, and he goes to the best patristic scholar uh, at the school, and, and he asks him about it. And he said, well, if I believed the Fathers as well as I know them, then I would have to convert. And so I think maybe one of the things we have to kind of tease out is what we mean by being deep in history. Because, of course, you could know the whole history. But even like, Gavin, in your in your description, 
it's it's knowing it and still rejecting a lot of these things, as you said, like as accretions or declensions or like you can know like the medieval church believed something very different than what Luther or Calvin or a modern Protestant believed. Um, I think Newman is making a certain assumption about having a continuity with that. And I think he's writing at a time and place where there'd been a little bit of a transition where the kind of Calvinist argument that this was a return uh, to what the early church believed was sort of being abandoned. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in kind of what you would say to that, because obviously, like, I'm reading it through Catholic lens saying, yeah, I know a ton of people who imagine that the early Christians believed something more or less like what they believe. And then they read the fathers and discover that they actually sound way more Catholic. Um, but I'm, yeah. I'm sure your mileage varies here and you know the fathers really well. Well, no, that's a great distinction you made about knowing versus believing, because that's true. I mean, and that, there's uh, Newman's reference to Gibbon, who's a non-Christian historian, right. and he's really knowledgeable, and he doesn't believe any of it. So, But I mean believing. So I'm saying, you know, I, I think that um, the to, to take the Marian dogmas, for example, that what the early church fathers believed about that is contrary to what contemporary Catholics require on pain of heresy. Um, and uh, that that's uh, that's a very exclusive sort of system that is now erected that's at variance with what I believe the early fathers believed. And then as you get into the patristic era, it will vary. But somebody like John Chrysostom is certainly way out. Um, so way can I push back a little or maybe just invite you to make a distinction when you say like what the fathers believed was at variance? Do you mean that there was like a, a broader range of theological opinion? Or do you mean that there were no fathers holding to what we would now call the Catholic view? Uh, neither, really. I just mean okay. that with these dogmas, um, some they seem to come in uh, after the apostolic deposit over time, some earlier, some later. And with some of them, there are church fathers who um, deny what the doctrines hold. So with the Immaculate Conception, I've charted out on my blog, people could check it out, I'm not trying to promote my blog, I promise. But, um, you know, five or six examples of this where the church fathers just seem to assume that Mary is at fault, whether it be in John 2 or Luke 2 in their biblical commentaries, they're assigning vainglory or sinful doubt to Mary in certain passages. And so the, I guess the, the, the way it looks to me as a Protestant, as I'm looking at church history, is that these things developed, that they're not represent, like, the, to give an example, the bodily assumption of Mary, which has been dogmatized and is required by the Catholic Church for someone just to get in the front door and get baptized and take the Eucharist. And yet this is something that I don't think we have any evidence of being in existence or thought of for hundreds of years. And we also have Epiphanius in the fourth century saying nobody knows what happened to Mary at the end of her life, and there's no blowback against that. So just looking at it historically, I would say, based upon the lack of biblical attestation that Mary was bodily assumed to heaven, the lack of early church historical attestation, that this came in later. That this, Especially because when it comes in, especially in the 5th century, you've got all these different legends about many of them are saying that she wasn't bodily assumed, that her body was taken to a special place to, be, to await the resurrection day. Some of them are saying um, she was buried, she died, was buried for three days, and then she was raised and assumed to heaven. There's all these different stories that pop up right around the same time. And then eventually you get to what the kind of more normative Catholic view would be today. So I'd say just looking at history, 
I don't agree with Newman that being deep in history would make you cease to be a Protestant because the history to me on that doctrine. So, so when I talk with my Catholic friends, I say, look, I'm required to believe it, that Mary was bodily assumed to heaven to join your church. So you're making the appeal that this is the one true church and to join this one true church, you have to believe this. And yet I don't see biblical or early church historical attestation of it. So then it kicks to the papacy and the, the appeal is, well, there's a teaching office in the church that has the authority to, to dogmatize this particular view. And my problem is, well, that teaching office as well looks to me like it's something that developed. And I'm sure we'll probably get into those things. But this is where I'm coming at it, because I'm very concerned about what the church fathers taught on these things. And I think, um, yeah, I just see I, I see uh, divergence from contemporary Catholic requirements and what I see in a lot of the fathers. And those are just some examples. I don't want to totally hijack you guys moderating. So if you want me to just <laughs> shut up here, I totally can. But there are a lot of really interesting things you said there that I'd love to. Me and Joe, we're just going to talk and you guys can <laughs> You guys can just sign off now. We'll just take it from here. This uh, is a great show. I'm just enjoying listening to you too. Uh, no, I mean, like, look, like this is one of those things where I think Catholics sometimes overstate the case because there are a lot of church fathers who speak of the sinlessness of Mary. And uh, so, for instance, I mean, you're really going back to like Irenaeus and the New Eve theology and the way it's developed, especially in the West. And like Augustine saying, like, Mary's the only sinless woman. And like, you know, all like you you clearly have people who who say Mary is sinless. The particulars of how she's sinless, like from the moment of conception, as, as opposed to like, a, you know, a, a lot of this, the kind of the nittier, grittier stuff you take longer to get the real specifics kind of spelled out. But you're also right that especially in the East, uh, up until John Chrysostom, but not really after him, you do have a camp of people saying, no, Mary sinned at least once. You know, there's a moment of doubt at the cross or uh, Mary spoke out of turn in John 2 or, yeah, it'll be like some some instance. Now, I want to make two distinctions there. First, when you have those guys, never do they say like, it is the teaching of our church, or it is a tradition, or we all know this. Like, John Chrysostom's a great example, where he says, well, maybe Mary is uh, just trying to, like, showboat and have Jesus perform a miracle for her own glory. And, like, maybe she's sinning here. And it's very much in the realm of, like, theological speculation. It's clear from him saying that, that there's not a universally agreed upon dogma on this point. But then the second thing I'd say is like the the Catholic view is on the table. It's just not the only option on the table. Like uh, theologian, my Greek is terrible, right? But it's like an acceptable theological opinion. Uh, theologamina, there it is. Uh, like it, you know, like it's one option among many. And so then I think this gets to maybe the the deeper point, Gavin, that you have that it's not just a Marian issue. It's it's a church authority issue, right? right. Like uh, at times and places, the church will say, okay these three or these five or these two opinions have been floating around and this is the right one and that's the wrong one. And so I guess my question is, are you against that anytime? Because the church also does that for like the Trinitarian doctrines and the Christological doctrines where like even really good Christian figures sometimes have kind of screwed up stuff about like the personhood of the Holy Spirit or whether there's subordinationism within the Holy Trinity or, you know what I mean? Like, You'll yeah. find even seemingly holy guys before these things are all clarified, getting some of the theological stuff wrong on like the Trinity and Christology or to take like a modern example, like William Lane Craig, 
amazing, amazing witness to Christianity. He's a monothelite. Like he's a, he's a heretic, uh, at least according to the Second Council of Nicaea. And so then the question really becomes, does the church ever have a time and place where it can say, hey, there's a dispute, let's settle it? Or is that like needlessly restricting uh, to, to the believer? Well, uh, uh, let me give a brief answer to that, then I promise I'll kick it back to Keith and we can go on to some new questions here, especially since we've now labeled William Lane Craig as a heretic, which I'll, I'll, I'll list my reservations or my disagreements on that, that one too. But, <laughs> but I know what you're saying, and I do agree with you on that particular theological issue. But I would say um, I wouldn't agree that we have the sinlessness of Mary as one option among many at all in the second century. I don't know of anybody. I mean, you can try to extrapolate it from the t- typology of Eve and Mary, but I don't. I, I think it it starts coming in in the third century. Um, and I think that the bodily assumption, you have nothing. Crickets chirping until the fourth century. And even then, it's very oblique. It's really not. And then in the fifth century, it just, as I say, proliferates. But you've got all these divergent accounts of what it means. Some of them aren't really bodily assumption. So I, I just, I wouldn't agree well, it's not because it's not a bodily assumption if Mary's body is taken away to a separate place. Like there's a, I can't remember the title of the text, but that's a, that's one of the views that pops up in the fifth century. So I, I wouldn't agree that you have all these options on the table and then one of them is selected by the church. I would say it looks like it develops, it comes into existence it, several hundred years into church history. And that's why the Newman quip about being deep in history, uh, I find unhelpful and unfair, but I, I'll, I'll, I'll stop there and let, but sorry, sorry to just take over this, guys. Man, it's my fault. This is fantastic. I, I'll speak for both of us here. I, I I can see on Keith's face he's enjoying it, and I am too. So, so have at it, guys. Something I want to get at here that I, I think is interesting as we approach this subject that is still somewhat at this beginning level, because I, I think there's a lot of areas in which we talk past each other in these conversations. But what should we be expecting of church history? So when when you look back... Are, are you expecting to see some type of continuity there? Like, do, do we have a reasonable expectation that there's this teaching that's going to be preserved? Or is it a lot less clear than that? And I imagine you guys are going to answer this differently, but we'll start with Gavin since we started with Joe last time. Okay, I would say, you know, um, the general expectation I would have is that the witness of church history is going to matter a great deal. So a couple just distinctions that are kind of obvious or basic points would be that the more attested something is, the stronger uh, that shall, should influence us. You know, a 90-10 is going to be stronger than a 60-40 <laughs> on, a, on a split opinion about a particular doctrine. Similarly, the more central a particular doctrine is, so like, you know, in terms of the issues that divide us as Protestants and Catholics, if something like purgatory I became convinced was universally attested throughout church history and biblically, theologically, there, there's no, no red flags. That wouldn't necessarily make me become Roman Catholic because there's lots of Protestants who believe in purgatory. It's not as central to the belief system. Um, historically, there's some Anglicans and even some Methodists and Lutherans who affirmed purgatory and you can find contemporary evangelicals who affirm purgatory. But it's something like the papacy that's different. That's more central. So it kind of depends on which doctrine we're talking about and how widely attested it is. But the main sort of observation I'd make is that for Protestants, we want to try to look at what we would think of as kind of the sum aggregate witness of all Christians. 
So we're not looking to a particular teaching office uh, within the Church of Rome as kind of the final verdict. We're trying to, you know, Vincent famously talked about what's been believed everywhere, always by all. Or if you think of a much um, looser kind of category, C.S. Lewis's category of mere Christianity, which is often misunderstood as though he's saying that's all you need or something like that. Mere Christianity for him was the hallway, not the room you live in. It's kind of the entry point. And it's a way to try to make the Christian faith intelligible to someone who's maybe new to it. And it could be a rubric that you might use in, in terms of the interpretations you make with regard to church history and with regard to theology. So we're looking, those things are really important to us. They weigh upon us, kind of what's mere Christianity? What's the sum witness of Christians throughout the church age? Um, that's going to weigh more for us as Protestants than one particular teaching office. And so there's differences kind of in how we negotiate church history. But, and, you know, Joe, the, the portion you quoted in my, I think it was an old blog post, one of my first blog posts ever. So I can hardly remember what I what it was even about. But I, I think I was just criticizing Protestants, which whenever I'm having these discussions, it's really important to me to, number one, if I say something that gives offense or steps on toes or is inaccurate, forgive me and, and you know, let me know that I did that. And also to be willing to own the Protestant errors, which are many. Um, and you can be a Protestant Christian for a reason other than thinking, oh, Protestantism is perfect. <laughs> this is great. This is exactly the dream. Um, there's lots of Protestant errors, and ignorance of church history is a huge one. But I think at their best, that's a little bit of how Protestants have thought about, you know, how much church history would you need to sort of change your mind on something? Yeah, um, I would obviously take a slightly different kind of approach with it. Um, I think, uh, so I guess, Austin, to your question, go back to the Last Supper, right? Jesus promises the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He'll teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. That's kind of the promise of the Holy Spirit working throughout history. And I don't think we should understand that as an immediate process, like the apostles just have all the theology or the first century Christians have all the theological questions. Like, it, you know, if if they were faced with like bioethical questions, they might still need to do a little bit of work, right? It isn't just like it's all immediately clear. Uh, same, but they are rather like a spirit guided unraveling of this down through the ages that's still ongoing. Uh, St. Gregory Nazianzen says it this way. He says, the Old Testament proclaimed the Father clearly, but the Son more obscurely. The New Testament revealed the Son and gave us a glimpse of the divinity of the Spirit. And now the Spirit dwells among us and grants us a clearer vision of himself. It was not prudent when the divinity of the Father had not yet been confessed to proclaim the Son openly. And when the divinity of the Son was not yet admitted to add the Holy Spirit as an extra burden to speak somewhat daringly, end quote. So it's like that idea in the church fathers that like, yeah, this stuff becomes gradually more clear. But I want to be clear, this is a, a movement from like blurry to clear, not a movement from like black to white or white to black. Like you can't just say, hey, by the way, there's now a fourth person of the Trinity. It's, it's rather that there's this ongoing unpacking of, of what's already believed in at least an embryonic form before that. So like the example I've given before is like a Sudoku puzzle. I don't know if any of you are nerdy enough to understand that example. You get like the number puzzle, right? And everything you need is already right there. And so like, if you can understand the relationship between the numbers, you have it all solved. That doesn't mean you have a solved puzzle before you. You still have to do the hard work of like seeing the relationship between the numbers that have been like revealed 
to understand how the rest of it all fits in place. And that's the journey the church has been on for 2000 years. Now, as you move further down the line, like as you spend more time on the puzzle, you'll know, oh, no, it can't be a seven there when maybe an hour before you thought it could have been. And so I think, you know, to Gavin's point, you go back in church history and you'll find a wider theological diversity of opinion on most questions. That's what we should expect if this idea is true, that like things become clearer as we move on. That also means like, okay, now we can say, here's what's not true about the will of Christ, or here's what's not true about the natures, or here's what is true about Mary, or, you know, uh, calling Mary mother of God versus mother of Christ. All that stuff builds and develops as you move forward, not as adding something new, like adding a new number that wasn't like given to you, but rather of seeing how like it all interplays uh, with each other. So I think that's one thing you're going to see is like a movement from blurrier to clearer theology, more precise theology as you go down through the ages. Uh, but I think the second thing, just to kind of create uh, a baseline, right? Uh, in the book, I mention this idea of ecclesial deism, and I'm getting this from Brian Cross. I think he's getting it from someone else, but here's how he's, he explains it. Uh, he says, deism refers to belief that God made the world and then left it to run on its own. It is sometimes compared to a clockmaker winding up a clock and then letting it run. It's distinct from theism in that theism affirms not only that God created the world, but also that God continually sustains and governs all of creation. Now, Brian is going to say, and I'm going to say, that a lot of Protestant theology sort of treats church history as if God winds up the church and lets it run in, in a similar way. So he says this, ecclesial deism is the notion that Christ founded his church, but then withdrew, not protecting his church's magisterium, i.e. the apostles and or their successors in the teaching office of the church from falling into heresy or apostasy. Ecclesial deism is not the belief that individual members of the magisterium could fall into heresy or apostasy. It's the belief that the magisterium itself could lose or corrupt some essential of the deposit of faith or add something to the deposit of faith, as according to, I'd add, some Protestants, allegedly occurred in the 5th, 6th, and 7th ecumenical councils. So, in other words, you will find like this greater clarity, but the baseline expectation is twofold. A, that the orthodox belief is always acceptable within the visible church. Like, even if it isn't the only option on the table, that it's always an acceptable option on the table. It's never declared a heresy. And B, that the teaching authority itself never, like, dogmatically defines something heretical. Because if it does, then, like, that defeats the whole point of having a visible church or visible teaching authority in the first place. Like, the apostolic structure of the church is totally thwarted if the, the apostles or their successors can teach something heretical. So that would be the baseline, that uh, whatever is being dogmatically taught uh, is always going to be not heretical. It, it doesn't have to be exhaustive of all of orthodoxy, but it's always going to be not heretical, and orthodoxy is always going to be an acceptable option on the table. I mean, I know that's a fairly low bar, right? But I think if we use that bar, it gives us a really effective way to compare Catholic and Protestant theology or theologies, because Gavin's right, like there's not a monolithic Protestantism, but just as kind of like a framework in which to understand church history. <laughs> you guys are pausing and waiting for me to go, I guess. I, I I appreciate Joe's comments. I'll just make a brief comment, but I don't want to keep getting us. I, I don't want to sidetrack us, so please interrupt me, uh, anyone. Um, I, I would just, there's a lot of agreement here. Doctrinal development is is absolutely unavoidable, and, and, and certainly the way Protestants look at church history as well. That's not where we would differ. In fact, 
one of my favorite things to think about is, can you prove the Trinity in the Old Testament? And that is a really fun exercise. And I think it's a great example of doctrinal development because you've got these murky, so like a good metaphor, you wake up in the morning and the sunlight's barely coming in through the window and you can just barely see things, but then you turn the light on and uh, it's kind of like from Old Testament to New Testament on the Trinity, you've got some clues. You've got Psalm 110 and, you know, the, the Messiah is going to be called Mighty God and there's all the uh, other Psalms and, and so forth, but you don't really have the Trinity. So that so doctrinal development is definitely uh, a point of agreement in, in you know, as such. I think I, I would certainly, um, the notion of ecclesial deism, I don't know how to say this without being... I don't want to be too blunt or too do blue, it. Go for it. It just strikes me as <laughs> such a preposterous criticism of Protestants. I mean, deism means that God sets up the world and then steps back and stops working. Well, obviously, Protestants don't think that unless you have an infallible teaching office in Rome, God isn't working. It seems to assume that two things. Number one, this is it, it assumes that the Roman Catholic magisterium is the way that God is working and that that's seemingly the only way that God could be at work. But I don't even think Catholics would think the only way God is at work is through the magisterium. Protestants believe that, that God is at work in, in, in myriad ways. And, and for the word deism to come up in the context of, the, of a criticism like that is, is tough for me to, uh, to fathom. I mean, read Calvin on how, God, on how Christ sustained the medieval church. He's saying Christ upheld the church by his right hand. He protected her by his word. He covered her in his spirit and so on and so forth. I don't know how any, anyone who has read, you know, the best of Protestant interpretations of early church history, medieval church history, Francis Turretin, Karl Barth, John Calvin, people like that, could think of it in terms of deism. Sorry if I'm coming on too strong, but I feel the need to be clear because I feel like that's a really unfair representation of Protestants. Gavin, I, I really appreciate you pushing back, and I you are not anywhere near like the edge of propriety, so don't worry about all okay. that. Uh, <laughs> but no, I, so I, if I can clarify a little bit, because I think maybe I didn't explain it well. Just to be clear, like Brian Cross and I are not saying Protestants are deists. Like we still realize, but rather that like, so go back to Matthew 16. Some of the most important words of the passage are, "I will build my church." Like Christ is saying. I'm going to build a church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. And so the Catholic argument is like, if you think the visible church taught heresy, that defeats the whole point of Christ building a church himself. Or to put it a different way, like when C.S. Lewis talks about the church and he compares it to like the platonic society of like a group of people who just like study Plato, that's what you would get. Like that's the kind of church you would get. If Christ hadn't built one himself, if he just left it to his followers to like group together and try to understand his teachings as best they could. So if Christ withdrew from the protection specifically of the church, like it's not just deism, it's ecclesial deism, like uh, winding up the ecclesia, the church, and letting the visible church kind of run into heresy and not not keeping it from heresy. Not that God just like totally withdraws from the world. It's like a much more specific uh, kind of argument that like the magisterium, the teaching authority, however you understand that, whether you take it like the Orthodox church or the Catholic church, or but the, to the extent there's a visible church, if you say the entire visible church is an error on doctrine X, it seems like that defeats the point of there being a visible church. I think that's the argument. Okay. That, that does help clarify a little bit. And I think, I, I guess a question I would have, which I don't know if we want to pursue it now is, 
how do you understand the division between the East and the West on this? I mean, Christ is in charge of the church. He is the church is his precious bride, right? He nourishes the church, um, but he allowed there to be a division, and this division came into existence. Oh, sorry, keeping you guys in suspense again. This uh, this division came into existence, uh, you know, well before Protestants did not introduce division to the church. We inherit a church that is divided. So, did Christ allow? this division to take place? Well, yes, it happened. Um, I mean, is are Orthodox Christians ecclesial deists? Uh, no, I would say no, because they think, like, uh, to kind of answer it broadly, right? The Orthodox claim is, like, Christ established a visible church. It's the Eastern Orthodox Church. And somewhere along the way, the papacy comes along, starts making claims that are crazier and crazier, and in 1054 splits off. That is at least a historically plausible kind of claim. Uh, I think it's wrong, and I think the evidence actually points against it, and for reasons that would take like way longer to kind of explain. But that's at least like a plausible claim in a way that I think Christ establishes a visible church. That visible church quickly or not so quickly falls into heresy, and like a German monk named Martin or like a French lawyer named John or whoever comes along and resurrects Christ's church on their own. And, and kind of reintroduces orthodoxy. Like, that that claim doesn't seem to me to, to withstand, I, I know I'm caricaturing it a little bit, right? But, like, the idea of, like, the visible church falling into something like an apostasy uh, is, I think, what this idea of ecclesial deism is speaking into. And the orthodox don't believe in an apostasy. Right, and, and, and most Protestants don't either. This is where this discussion is helping me understand a little bit how better you're thinking about that. Of course, there are some Protestants who believe in a great fall, sometimes with Constantine or as early as the great century, or back into the second century. You can find that out there. But most, as I was saying earlier, read Turretin on his notion of the preservation of the true church. Every single reformer, without exception, every single one of the magisterial reformers affirmed the preservation of the true church in every generation. Protestants believe in the visible church. So the Protestant view is much closer to the Orthodox view than than I, I think you just presented it there. That's what I struggled with in the early chapters of your book, Joe, is it felt like maybe not the best of Protestant views being brought to the table because, I mean, the Reformers were so clear on this point. They said Christ never abandoned the church. The true church was preserved in every generation. And that's, so I draw a lot on that in the, in the theological retrieval book as a, as a reason to rebuke my Protestant friends for the errors we've talked about where Protestants sometimes do have a more separate, and you can find those apostasy or remnant views of church history, but that's not the best Protestant view, or it's certainly not the majority one among the magisterial reformers. Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, like in my book, I, I actually talk about, I, I distinguish that view, the one we're talking about right now from like the view laid out by Huss, Wycliffe, Luther, Calvin, on like the idea of like some sort of invisible church or an, a church of the saved distinct from the visible magisterium. Um, so I, I, I totally agree that it's not the only view out there. And I, I would be happy to talk a little bit more about that if you guys want, or if you want to go on to the next question, we can, we can do that too. I'll leave that to you, Keith. Well, I think we can go a bit forward because a bit further forward. I want to save some things for our parts two, three, four, and five of these discussions because I think there's a lot of fruit to be had in these. If if we can get you guys to entice you guys back on on this uh, collaborative program in the future, but I want to talk about this idea of retrieving theology because you mentioned your book, uh, Gavin, theological retrieval for evangelicals, and. In my mind, there's a serious problem with that, and it comes down to picking and choosing. So I want to ask you first, Gavin, 
I said earlier that, that the deeper I got into patristics, the more that I found the Protestant narrative something wasn't tenable. We've obviously talked about that quite a bit here. And you do lay out a lot of perils of this idea of retrieving ancient theology. I think readers are really well served by what you ultimately bring about there in your book and, the, and what you lay out. But I don't think this addresses the ultimate issue of, of who decides. Who decides what to retrieve and, and what to leave off? And who decides where the ancient church was right and, and where they were wrong? And I'm thinking of Dr. Doug Beaumont, a good friend of, of my show and, and a, a good friend who was teaching at Southern Evangelical Seminary, assisting the late Dr. Norman Geisler in writing his systematic theology. And Doug later converted amongst a wave of converts and ended up writing a whole book on this called Evangelical Exodus, one of my favorite collections of conversion stories. And I'm not Doug's marketing team here, so I should, I should keep going. My point is, though, that, that what Doug told me on the show was that his, his research for Geisler uh, was basically to go through the early church fathers and find, up, and find quotations that, that lined up with his theology, that, with Geisler's existing theology. You know, it was, it was shoehorning the church fathers, piling up quotations into an already existing theology. And that's my problem, ultimately, with any kind of approach of retrieving theology. You know, it makes the retriever, like Beaumont or Geisler, or like I would have been as I was understanding the church fathers as an evangelical, it makes the retriever of that theology into the arbiter, right? The arbiter of what parts of that theology are right and, and what's wrong. So I wonder how you would address this idea of how do you avoid just picking and choosing things from the fathers to, to believe? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel the weight of that question because when you're doing theological retrieval, um, yeah, I mean, that's a real live danger for sure. Um, but I would say a couple of things. I mean, so... W- for people watching this, when I talk about theological retrieval, I'm, I just mean that in a very broad sense of just drawing from historical theology to do constructive systematic theology today. Basically, we're just talking about learning from the past, kind of going back to question number one, especially with an emphasis upon neglected or or resources that maybe have been forgotten to some extent. And I think sometimes the idea of picking and choosing is presented there are some differences between how a Protestant will engage in retrieval and a Catholic, but I think sometimes those differences are pressed too absolutely, as though they're totally different. Um, first of all, most Protestants are a part of a particular ecclesial tradition that does have doctrinal standards. You know, if you're an Anglican, you got the 39 Articles. If you're Lutheran, you got the Book of Concord. If you're Presbyterian, like I used to be, you've got the Westminster Standards. And I remember vividly the debates about what is proper subscription to the Westminster standards really entail, and those can get really feisty. And those standards are enforced by ecclesiastical courts. So sometimes people act as though Protestants are just out there on their own. You know, whatever I like, I accept. Whatever I don't like, I don't accept. Protestants um, do read scripture in light of their own ecclesial tradition. That One of the differences will be they don't see those doctrinal standards as having any sort of inherent infallibility but they're still bound to them. And if at any point they become outside the bounds, then you stop being a Lutheran or you stop being an Anglican. And I actually think that's kind of similar to what Catholics will do. I mean, you choose to be a Catholic. You you choose to be a Catholic or you're born into it and you remain in it. And you do that because presumably that's what you think is right. And you're, in a sense, picking and choosing. You're you're choosing to remain a Catholic. If at any point someone doesn't believe that they, the Catholic Church is the true church, I would expect and hope that they wouldn't be a Catholic. You know, it's a, it's a choice you make. Now, then you'll function differently in light of that, but not, not on everything. There's lots of points that the Catholic Church hasn't dogmatized that, you know, the kind of retrieval I do is like, 
Augustine on evolution stuff. I think that's really fun. You know, how, what can we learn from Augustine's commentary on Genesis as we're wrestling with creation and evolution? So that's kind of the whole impetus behind my, my book on that. So that's the kind of thing a Protestant and a Catholic could have great discussions about, and we'd both be in a similar place. We're saying, what can we learn from Augustine? This is a member of our church family. This is someone who's really smart and really sincere. We can both learn from him, and, and the particular questions aren't things that like you're bound to as a Catholic. So I don't, I don't see Catholics and Protestants as too, too different on this point. I guess, the, in my mind, the picking and choosing happen is an unavoidable part of being a, a responsible moral creature. You know, uh, it's kind of what we all have to do. Do you want me to uh, speak into this as well? I know this is kind of specific <laughs> to Gavin's book, but I, I, I think that's, I largely agree with him actually. Um, and I think the example of Augustine on evolution is a great one that you can, you can do one of two things when you approach him. You can either say, I need to find a proof text to support my side of a contemporary debate, or you can approach him and just say, okay, here's a doctor of the church. What does he have to say? Like, what can I learn from him? Um, like to use a contemporary political example, just to give another something inaccessible to Canadians, uh, like Bernie Sanders uh, voted against background checks for guns back in the 90s. And his track record is like much closer on like gun stuff uh, to like the NRA than, than one might assume because he's from Vermont. Uh, if you took just that detail, you could construct a story about how he's actually like a conservative, but it wouldn't be really faithful to the manner to his beliefs. Uh, likewise, I think kind of what Doug Beaumont's talking about in terms of the way Norm Geisler approached them, there's, there can be kind of a lot of mining of the church fathers to find these kind of proof texts. Now, that's not exclusive to Protestants. I've, I've seen Catholics do the same thing, where they they take quotes out of context to support uh, either a Protestant or a Catholic like argument, sometimes like totally avoiding the broader context. So to call out like other Catholics here, um, sometimes Augustine, his earlier stuff on like the rock will be used without any acknowledgement that he later doubted the, his own arguments, right? And retractiones, he, he presents a contrary argument and says, I actually don't know which of these is right, figure it out for yourselves, you know? Like, and so if you just take half of that, whichever half sounds better for the, the debate you're trying to have, that's not an honest way of, of viewing the person, right? And you see this a lot on the Protestant side with like Jerome on the 66 book canon. Jerome ends up uh, submitting to the, the, what he calls the judgment of the churches. And so it would be wrong to take him as like a kind of characteristic of like the fourth century, fifth century church and say, oh, yeah, this is a representative view. And it would also be, I think, dishonest to take him as like, therefore, he's basically a Protestant. What you sometimes get is kind of a, a Frankenstein pastiche of like a few quotes from Augustine, a few quotes from Jerome to present a kind of like uh, stitched together church father that you can find saying all the right things to sound like a certain type of Protestant, but that isn't accurate to any of the, the church fathers. I don't know if that's like a, a very clear or coherent way of, of describing it, but I think that's kind of the danger. And I would say the, the response to it is like, we should instead, all of us, should try to approach them as like holy men who understood Christ better than we do and who can show Christ to us in new and exciting ways, and to approach them with a posture of humility to see what we can learn from them, rather than trying to grab a good soundbite for like a modern debate. And I could just briefly to state my appreciation for what Joe just said there, because that is a huge temptation on each side, you know, to, and, and honestly, Protestants do it all the time. I think we all, people on both sides can do it, where you just go back and just pluck out the quote, 
and that's kind of how retrieval is construed and it's then leveraged in a polemical way against someone and yeah so that's a huge and so to your question keith i appreciate the question because it is a huge danger you know and something we need to be especially alert to that's really good and i, I love both of your guys insights on that and it's, <laughs> it's great to hear how, how similarly you guys think about that I wanted to turn the corner a bit to a question you've posed in your book, Joe, and I've heard you pose elsewhere that about this dichotomy between unity and truth. So as we look back into the church fathers and we were trying to see them in their context and we're saying, you know, there, there are these multifaceted holy men and we're, we're trying to see where they lead. I could see how someone would say, and for Gavin, this is for you. You know, there's this giant Catholic church that has this opinion on it. And this is they say, this is what the fathers are saying. And then in Protestantism, I'm seeing this kind of multiplicity of readings and it, it's splintered into different directions. So if someone looks into church history and they grant that it's not wholesale Catholic, Gavin, do you feel they're forced to choose truth instead of unity? Does it become that dichotomy or is that perhaps not quite fair? Mm. Maybe this answer will sound overly pessimistic, but I actually think falling short of both truth and perfect truth and perfect unity is going to be to some extent unavoidable this side of the second coming. Um, and I just a parenthetical comment would be, I do pray for the reunion of different branches of Christendom. I do pray for unity. I do pray. I think, and it is a, a wonderful, joyful thought at the second coming when there will be, I mean, there's going to be a lot of great things about heaven. One of them amidst a zillion others will be no more church divisions. Uh, so that is something we should pray for and long for. And that's why dialogues like this are so meaningful and so healthy and so appropriate. Um, but I think one thing that's helpful to say, I don't know if this is a full answer to the question here, but one thing that's helpful to say is, and I think we could probably all agree on this, that there are different kinds of unity, or perhaps better to say it, there's different ingredients that go into unity. You could have a Protestant church where two people are under the institutional umbrella and they sign the, on a, the dotted line and have the same doctrine, but they cuss each other out in the parking lot on the way into church. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, it happens, you know? Um, so, uh, that obviously falls way short, woefully short of the realization of Jesus's prayer in John 17. Now that doesn't mean institutional unity is unimportant. It, you know, it's a necessary criterion. It's just not a sufficient criterion. So if we're pursuing a full orb unity, it's going to involve a both and approach. You know, we're going to want to approach institutional unity. We're going to be take ecumenical dialogue seriously. Sometimes um, Protestants think of the word ecumenical or ecumenism as bad words or something like that. It can be done badly, but it's a wonderful thing to 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 look at how can we heal what is broken. You know, so I have a big heart for that. Um, I'm sure I'll. I've already changed and learned so much in the process of talking with Catholics. I respect my Catholic friends so much. I, I've learned a ton. Um, so even just for that reason, you know, dialogue is useful. We can learn things from people in other traditions. But I don't think, oh gosh, I've said a lot of harsh things or a lot of strong disagreements. I don't know how further to push this since I've finally struck a more conciliatory note here, maybe I should just stop now. <laughs> Go for it. Do it. <laughs> well, the last thing I'll say, okay, so just on the whole issue of unity, I mean, so like, I do regard the Catholic claim to be the true church as a barrier. 
And and the reason is it, it it's kind of like if two people think they owe each other money. One person saying, "Hey, you owe me fifty bucks." The other person is saying, "No, you owe me fifty bucks." Now, if some person, if one of the two parties comes to the other and says, "Hey, we need to have unity," so pay up. <laughs> That's not exactly the most generous appeal. Now, if the on the other hand, if they say, "Hey, we need to have unity," so let's talk until we figure out the financial discrepancy. That's a more winsome appeal. And when Catholics say, "We're the true church, and you're not." And we need to have unity. It it kind of comes across as a particular kind of unity, kind of a unity on our terms. And I guess I look. I mean, Protestants have a lot of blame. We got a lot of blame to fall at us for um, breaching. And to since I mentioned Joe's book, I'll say one thing I really appreciated about the book is the call to unity and the importance of that. At the end of the book, um, that is not icing on the cake. That is essential to the mission of Christ. And it's right there in John 17. And so we've got to take that seriously. So I'll conclude by saying where Protestants have failed, and we have, we need to not just kind of begrudgingly nod at that. We need to repent because that is wrong. I think it's a really beautiful way of describing that. And there's a lot there that uh, we actually agree on. In terms of like biblical terms, the way I usually describe it is one heart unity versus one mind unity. You know, like like you said, you can agree on all the doctrine and still cuss each other out in the parking lot. So like in Acts 4, when it says the believers were of one heart, that's that unity of heart seems to be something not just in terms of like doctrinal agreement, but there's also unity of mind. And so like in Philippians 2, uh, when St. Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, I think he's calling for two types of unity there. Uh, fraternity unity, you know, a unity of heart, but also a doctrinal unity, a unity of mind. Uh, and part of that, I think, goes back to John 17, right? Like Christ says that we need to be one so the world can believe in the gospel. Because if you've got innumerable different variations of the creed that are contradictory and contrary, uh, the non-believer is totally justified in saying, okay, you guys disagree with each other. I don't know what to believe here. You're saying opposite things. You're saying contradictory things. And that actually impedes the cause of truth. So I think, you know, like you said, like ecumenism can be kind of a bad word in Catholic spheres as well as Protestant ones. But there's this idea that unity is actually in the service of the truth. That like if we are not united, that hurts the spread of the truth. And so we got to take one mind and one heart unity extremely seriously. And I think we don't do that. Now, if I can make a pitch for papal infallibility or ecclesial infallibility in the context of that, I'd say this, like, if the church can err, if the visible church can err, uh, and there may be a time where I have to go into schism from the church in order to be orthodox, then we're in a catch-22, right? Because Christ has forbidden uh, schism. I mean, Galatians 5, right? Like, schisms and factions are listed among the works of the flesh that, that don't inherit eternal life. So if I have to choose between heresy and and schism, I'm being forced to choose two things that are both forbidden me in the New Testament. And not just forbidden me in like some abstract sense, but like specifically First uh, Peter, like Peter's looking ahead, telling future believers that like the days are going to come where there are challenges to orthodoxy. And then in John 17, Jesus is looking ahead and saying, like, we, we're going to need to be united in the future. So, like, this, this prohibition against schism and the prohibition against heresy aren't just for, like, the first century, but are clearly upon us today. So it's true that we're going to probably fall short of a total unity of heart and unity of mind. But I think we can at least say, let's not be schismatics or heretics. And if we can't trust the church, 
then we actually can't avoid uh, becoming one of those two things. Uh, maybe maybe you'd see this differently. I'd actually be really interested if you see a way kind of out of that catch-22 or maybe I need to explain it better. Well, I'll take a throw out a thought here, and if this is off topic, you can uh, you can help me. Um, I mean, I, I certainly I certainly think from a Protestant standpoint, we don't think that it is schism to reject heresy. So that we wouldn't have, and the reason is we're thinking differently about the nature of the church. So I think the distinction between the invisible and visible church, and those terms maybe have some baggage, but the idea that they're getting at is maybe an area where as we press into further discussions as well, we can keep circling back to that, because when the reformers made the appeal for this distinction, they were looking at Augustine's on rebuke and grace, chapters 20 and 22. They were drawing from patristic texts, and they were basically making an appeal that I don't know how not to make. I mean, if you think that, so like, am I going to heaven? Am I saved from your vantage point? Don't answer, but uh, the, the question is, can non-Catholics be a part? So the New Testament uses the word ecclesia to describe the recipients of the saving work of Christ. Acts 20, Christ bought the, God bought the church with his blood. Ephesians 5, the church is the bride of Christ. He nourishes it. He loved her and gave his life for her. So, um, and then you've got a couple of different ways that the word ecclesia is also used. Now, if you allow that people can experience the saving benefits of Jesus Christ by appropriating his work into their lives, and yet they're not a member of the visible church, I don't see how that doesn't get you to the same place practically as the visible and invisible church distinction. And I think, you know, at one point in the book, Joe, you mentioned that you think it was, there's a really funny quote by, is it Bellarmine, where he's talking about the body and it's like, it has fingernails and it's like, it's got these really bad parts within the body. But then you talk about how there's people outside the body who can also be saved, but it's invisible in the sense of we don't know exactly who it is. And I kind of find myself thinking, well, that's basically gets you to the same spot as a Protestant thinking there's a visible church, but then there's people outside it and you don't know what those boundaries are exactly. So to me, kind of what we're talking about kind of kicks back to that issue, which I'm sure we'll want to keep probing. And if not in this time, gosh, it sounds like we got enough, enough of a starting point to have like five more of these or something like that, which I would love to do. Yeah. I I would just like to say, I would also love to, you've been great talking to, you know, can I, can I go into a little bit on just like where I see the difference between um, because you're right that there is an invisible dimension to the church. Here's how I would explain it to explain why you don't have to have two different churches or two different uh, reference for ecclesia. Because like, just to give a little bit of biblical background, right? Like in Matthew 18, it says, take it to the ecclesia, take it to the church. If you've got a dispute with another believer, that has to be to something visible and something able to act in a judicial kind of fashion, because that's what's being presupposed, right? And like the ecclesia is the gathering together. It's the calling out and gathering together. That's what the word means. And so to have people invisibly gathered together, like that doesn't really do justice to like the history of the usage of the term kind of even in Greek. There's a much, I just said more than I probably should have there. Because I don't want to take the time to kind of spell all that out. But let me just say this. Like uh, I lived for three years as an American in Rome. I was invisibly connected to America, right? Like I could still vote. I still had to pay taxes. I still had like some kind of connection to the U.S. Um, But that didn't mean that there was like a visible America and an invisible America. And I could go into schism from one without being in schism from the other. Like I couldn't say I reject visible America, but I'm still part of the invisible America. 
Uh, Keith, once again, an American analogy. <laughs> There's probably the same thing with too. Canada, yeah. right? Uh, but, you know, so that kind of idea, right? Like, you can be invisibly connected to a visible institution. You can be part of a group, like you can be part of a book club and not show up. And you're somehow still connected to the book club, even if you're not physically there one Tuesday night or whatever. Uh, so the idea of the church is like, we can point to the visible church and say where it is. We can't say where it isn't. We can't say like who has zero connection to it because connection gets complicated. And the entry point to the church, which has been repeatedly declared throughout the centuries, right, is baptism. And so anyone getting baptized with a Trinitarian baptism is in some sense a Catholic. They're in some sense part of the church by the Catholic Church's own understanding of, of what makes someone Catholic, even if they're not, uh, we'd say, juridically Catholic, like even if they're not aware they're Catholic and put themselves under canon law or something like that, there still is some sense of membership that's a little broader than than some Catholics will will understand or, or acknowledge. Like you get kind of the hardcore people who say, like, unless you call yourself Roman Catholic, you're going to hell. And that's actually not what the church has ever said. But she still thinks that all of those people are kind of Catholic in spite of themselves, that they are more Catholic than they realize. And like the biblical foundation of this would be like St. Paul saying there's a visible body, right, with apostles as the head in 1 Corinthians 12. But he also says like if the ear says that it's not part of the body, it's still part of the body. It's just more part of the body than it realizes. Or going back to like the Psalms, when Christ or when God is talking about Zion and says he's going to number like some of Rahab and Egypt as like members of Israel, Israel had this reality. Like Israel is very clearly a visible place. It's got borders, it's got censuses and all that. But still, even in the Old Testament, there's this idea that some are among the people, uh, just not visibly. Mm. And I just to uh, be clear too, I agree with uh, that visible and invisible are not two different churches. They're two different ways. I mean, another way to just get those terms out of here and just talk about the church from the standpoint of God's election in eternity past and the church from the standpoint of who's baptized now. Um, and But part of what we're getting into here too, I think, is the visible is the visible church the same thing as the institutional church? Because I that's a point of difference because I and there's these different presuppositions we come to it with, and that's where I'm trying to listen carefully and make sure I'm not misunderstanding something, because I just, I've been a Protestant all my life. I just think differently. <laughs> so I think of the Waldensians. I'm happy to say the Waldensians were part of the church. I'm happy to say that, and I'm happy to say that many of them are saved, and I'm happy to say that Pentecostalism is the Holy Spirit growing his church. I, I think uh, in, in less what I regard as kind of less rigid uh, barriers for what is the visible church. I, in other words, I think you can be visible without necessarily being under the jurisdiction of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, what would what would constitute schism in this view? Like if the visible church is kind of more loosely defined in this way, how I guess how is it possible for or is schism just the same thing as heresy? Well, I guess you know for in a Catholic context, the word schism, has perhaps a more technical meaning, but you can have a view of the church in which you think the true visible church exists in different um, denominations and different traditions, and still think that schism and other related sins of divisiveness and division and so forth can exist. Um, 
gosh, that could play out in a lot of different ways. And it does to go back to how where Protestants have been weak, you know, and there has been a lot of splintering and fragmenting. So, um, yeah, I, I guess it, it, that could play out in a lot of different ways. And it certainly is a real it's schism seems different than heresy, though. Um, both would constitute very grave errors. <laughs> I have pause. Well, yeah, I, I'd love to find out more about that, but this is one of those ones where, like, we want it to be maybe a five part, not like a fifty part. So, oh man, I want to ask one more question, and then Austin has a question to cl close us off if we have if we have time. This is a, a, a juicy question that I'm just dying to ask you guys. Rod Bennett, popular writer on patristics and a good friend of this show, is another Catholic convert, and he tells the story of discovering the the early church fathers and discovering the the thousands of pages of the writing that we have and. In those pages, he found a church that, in his opinion, looked nothing like the Jesus People movement that he was a part of at the time. And he came on my show recently, and, and he issued what I think is a really unique and interesting challenge. And I want to put it to both of you guys here, and it's equally, I think, weighty for on both cases. And he said, as an evangelical, and this particularly is pressing for you, Gavin, as a senior pastor of an evangelical church, he said, as an evangelical, which of the church fathers would you accept as a pastor in your church? And his point, I think, was you can find as an evangelical church fathers that say a lot of evangelical sounding things, but those same church fathers say a lot of Catholic sounding things. And on the flip side, Joe, I'll ask you this next, is that you find a lot of church fathers who might be at odds with Catholicism if we just pick them out of history and pluck them down right now into a modern Catholic church in, in the same way. But Gavin, first, I want to ask you this. What do you make of, of that challenge that the early church fathers you know, wouldn't be welcome as a pastor at First Baptist. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, these historical uh, sort of thought experiments are are really fun to think about. Of what, you know, if you if Augustine got in a time machine, you know, what, what would he think about this or where would he fit in here? Um, I think they're really instructive to think about. I think I actually think they're impossible to answer with any certainty because part of what makes someone believe what they believe is their context and what influences them. So it's interesting to think about, well, how soon after Augustine arrived? I mean, would he have some dialogue, some theological dialogue that would change his views within the first 12 hours? And, and well, probably so. I mean, we're affected by our context. So it's tough to say. I do think that part of the sad state of Christendom right now is that um, in none of the major branches of the church would mo many, I'll say, of the church fathers fit perfectly. And that would be, you know, again, going back to the things we we're talking about at the beginning of how much development and change there has been. And I, I, I think a more, I like to think of it in terms of would they be a member? Could they be a member and could they take of the Eucharist? Um, because that to me is a more basic barrier that is extremely harsh to 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 um, set up a roadblock for someone, whereas being a pastor is a very high, you know, you're administering the sacraments, and so there's a higher standard for that office. Um, I would think that some of the early church fathers could fit the bill here at First Baptist, so like Polycarp and some of these type people, but I would acknowledge that many of the later ones couldn't for the, for the specific issue of baptism. And you just, you know, if you believe in infant baptism and baptismal regeneration, then you wouldn't be um, acceptable to administer that sacrament in my church context. And I don't mean to say that uh, that's um, 
simple or easy because I think how the, the doctrine of baptism develops in the early church is really complicated. But, um, but yeah, but it's hard. It's those are tough scenarios to say because it's like you're looking at someone in their own context, and then you're saying, well, what would they do in a different context? And it's it's honestly very tough to be sure. I remember, like, so final thing I'll say on this is in my favorite book, C.S. Lewis's uh, That Hideous Strength. It's one of the his novels. There's a scene where the character Merlin travels in time. It's exactly this kind of scenario, and Merlin just cannot fathom a world without the emperor. He's like, it, to him, it's like, the, the, how do you even, how does the sun even rise if you don't have an emperor, you know? And the emperor was hugely, he called it all of the ecumenical councils. You got Gregory the Great talking about how the Pope needs to be sub, submissive to the emperor. He was hugely significant in terms of church government. So it's an example of how difficult it is to go from one context to another, because there's so many intervening contingencies that have changed. Sorry for the disappointing answer. <laughs> well, I, I'll just take the opposite view. I think it actually isn't as hard uh, to know what the answer would be from the Catholic context. And I think we have at least one. So like, like let, let's affirm what's right in, in what Gavin just said. Uh, the context are changed and it would be eye opening, I think, in both directions to see how different some of the background assumptions are in 21st century Christianity from like fifth century or third century or first century. Right. Um, but I think that there's uh, one litmus test, if you will. Uh, I would give you the example of Jerome. So like Jerome, I already alluded to before, like he argued for the 66 book Protestant Bible. Uh, basically, he argued for the Jewish Old Testament, which is what's currently used in most Protestant Bibles. Uh, and he was more or less in agreement with one other person on this, Rufinus, but he was pretty much outside the mainstream in both the East and the West in the exact canon he was arguing for. But when push came to shove, he submitted to what he called the judgment of the churches. Uh, and so he actually writes against Rufinus. And in book one, he talks about how, like, he's taking the Catholic version of Daniel, the longer version. And he explains, he says, the churches choose to read Daniel in the version of Theodosian. What sin have I committed in following the judgment of the churches? So he, when his own reasoning led him one way and the clear judgment of the church led him another way, he had the humility to say, you know what? I'm going to submit to the church here. The church is probably right. And so, of course, you know, he becomes the principal translator of the Latin Vulgate, which is like the 73 book canon used for more than a millennium. And that humility, I would argue, is the hallmark of a saint in any age. The ability to say, here's what I would have thought on my own, but the church says this, and the church probably knows more than I do. Uh, and this is especially true, of course, if you can trust in the idea of infallibility, that it's not just like a probability game, but you can actually know God is protecting the church in some sense. I would contrast that, of course, with like Martin Luther. Early on, um, he had this nagging doubt that he later described as saying, are you alone wise? And I think it's hubris that he basically said, yep, I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. That is not the way you see any of the saints in the early church acting. Uh, that's, of course, not unique to the Reformation. St. Irenaeus uh, talks about how like the Gnostics in the second century or like the heretics he's writing against. He says, when we refer them to that tradition that originates from the apostles and which is preserved by means of the succession of presbyters in the churches, they object to tradition, saying that they themselves are wiser, not merely than the presbyters, but even than the apostles, because they have discovered the unadulterated truth. So in other words, I would say in the early church, there's this continual like refrain that like if you think you're so smart that you're smarter than like the visible church, 
that's a, a huge red flag. Because they lived with that kind of humility, I think that if they came to you know the modern church and realized like, oh, okay, this thing that I believed was actually wrong on this issue or that issue, they have the humility basically of the Ethiopian in Acts 8.31, who says, how can I understand this unless someone guides me? And I think that they would be either A, relieved to have their confusions cleared up, or maybe B, humbled uh, to find out that like they'd made a mistake and that their mistake may have led future Christians astray. Like I, I think it's very clear that none of them would say, I'm so convinced of this point of theology that I will break from union with the church because their lives point to that kind of humility and respect uh, for the visible union of the church. If, if I, can I say something real quick on just like the baptism issue? Like, I, I think it's telling there, right? Like you have a universal belief in regenerative baptism. Like all of the church fathers who write on this are either explicitly pro regenerative baptism or, or like, ambiguous enough that like someone who believes in baptismal regeneration can claim a hundred percent of the fathers. Uh, there's no one who, who says baptismal regeneration doesn't happen. Like even in the debates about infant baptism, both sides assume regenerative baptism happens. And, and there's a big debate about whether or not you want that regeneration to happen at the end of your life because you're afraid you might fall into like mortal sin later on. Like the whole framework of the debate, getting back to something we said earlier is just not kind of the framework that like a modern Catholic and Baptist are having. They're, they're assuming, I would argue, a Catholic theology. And so the only ones we can point to are like in the first or second century where the, the evidence is at least vague enough that it isn't like obviously wrong. Uh, so I would say like I, I'm really hesitant of any appeals to vagueness of like A, B, C, and D clearly disagree with me, but E doesn't necessarily like, well, if E actually disagreed with A, B, C, and D, you would expect to find some kind of debate between them kind of in their age. Does that make sense? So, like, if, like, the first and second century church denied baptismal regeneration and then some group came up in the third century and taught it, we should be expecting some really big uh, debates between them. Like, we see debates in the early church over much less. So I think this is one of those areas where, like, to believe in what the, the early Christians believed on this issue— uh, is to at least not be Baptist. I know that sounds like needlessly pejorative. And I'm not meaning it that way, Gavin. I'm sorry. I'm just trying no, to say like, sorry. is at least to believe in like <laughs> baptismal regeneration. Uh, and so in that sense, I would say like, yeah, all of the canonized fathers of the church would be welcome in a Catholic church. They may discover that some of the points they like stepped out on a branch on, uh, we now have greater clarity on. As the lowly Baptist over here, I, I will refrain from too many comments uh, because this that that would be great stuff to pick up on next time. But I would just state my agreement with the general point of if it, if you find it's like me versus the church, uh, <laughs> repent or or change your mind or or at least listen a lot more carefully or be a lot more careful or, or you know. So yeah, that that we're in agreement on. I think then we then we get into okay, well, what is that universal witness of the church? Sometimes, like to go back to the Marian dogmas, sometimes there's no debate or pushback about something because it's totally the other way. Epiphanius doesn't get any pushback when he says, "Who knows if Mary died or not in the fourth century?" Because there's no, no discussion of it. So, and I don't know that that whether or not John Chrysostom would change his mind when he clearly thought of Mary as someone who committed sins. We don't know whether he would change his mind on that or not, whether he'd be welcome or not. But, as I say, to be continued. And on baptism stuff, I, I have to acknowledge and humble myself before that topic, before that question. You raise a lot of fair points on that, Joe. And um, 
Yeah, I've got some I've got some tough questions to answer. So that's exactly the thing I'll save for our next discussion. <laughs> this is fantastic. I, I, I hear you guys saying you want to come back to discuss baptism, the papacy, the nature of the church. And so I'm all for it. <laughs> but seriously, guys, thank you so much for your time. This has been absolutely phenomenal. I've enjoyed it so much. Keith, thank you for setting this up. I just wanted to close with kind of one final question to kind of put a bow on it. And then I'll let Keith wrap us up at the very end. But if someone out there is listening and whether they're Protestant, Catholic, or maybe they're trying to figure out what they want to be and they're thinking, okay, I want to be deep in history, no matter where that leads me, I I want to be deep in history. What advice would you give them on that pursuit? And I assume that you both think that would have them end up where you are. And perhaps just briefly, why do you think that is? And oh, sorry, we can start with uh, Joe. Sorry, I, I actually cut out there for a second, but I think I know what you were asking. Uh, am I good now or am I still cutting out? You're good. You're good. Okay, cool. Um, I would say like the question of like the church fathers is so big because it's a historic, like you're saying like, hey, I want to know more about like 500 years of church history. And I would say the first thing I would recommend is to figure out like, is there a particular area you're interested in? You know, like for me, uh, a big starting point was on the Eucharist. I wanted to know the Eucharistic theology of the early church. And Father Edwin O'Connor, I think it is, has a book called The Hidden Manna, where he just traces uh, like Eucharistic theology in the church. And he, the, like, it's divided in three parts. So the first part is the church fathers, second part is the reformers, and the third part is modern theologians. So I'd say it's like, like the new Star Wars trilogy and that like the first one is like the most interesting one. Uh, <laughs> but like if you're if you're more interested in like the poetry and hymns of the early church, then maybe you check out like Ephraim the Syrian or Gregory Narek or, you know, like there are books on this. At a certain point, uh, you're going to want to read the church fathers themselves. So I keep pointing people to like books that quote the church fathers and maybe explain them as kind of a zero entry point. Um so maybe two final suggestions. Churchfathers.org has uh, compilations of quotations of the Church Fathers on particular topics. Now, quotations, it's always a risky proposition because you, you run the risk of exactly what we talked about earlier. Like, is this accurate to the views of the Father? And is the Father an outlier on this? Or is this a normative view of the Church in that age? So I would say you can use it as like a launching point. Maybe if you read it and see something eye-opening, it gives the sources and then you can like go look that up and dive in. Um, Philip Schaeff, of course, has like a huge, there's what's called the ANF and, uh, what is the, uh, the Nicene and post NPNF. So it's the anti-Nicene fathers and the, uh, Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. These are like many volumes, right? If you want to get really academic on it, but then the, the final recommendation I'd have is actually newadvent.org slash fathers. Uh, that's one of my preferred go-tos because it's a great collection. It's pretty extensive and the formatting makes for really easy reading. It's in a fairly modern English. It's, it's easy to read. You're not looking at like really tiny text. And so, yeah, just say, find what interests you and then start picking it up. And if, if a particular father is boring or confusing, find somebody else for now. You know what I mean? It's almost like if you picked up the Bible and started reading numbers, it'd be easy to despair of like the Bible. <laughs> And so in, in the same way, it's like find what you can handle and engage in that and then keep swimming as you're able would be more or less what I would say. And in agreement with Joe on, on the, um, 
kind of diving in. I like to encourage people to dive into the deep end of the pool and just read the church fathers themselves. I, I actually think some, in some cases they might find the church fathers easier to read than books about the church fathers because there's such honesty and sincerity and earnestness. Their books are often shorter and sometimes uh, they're easier to understand. I mean, it kind of depends on which book, obviously, but um, I think there's huge value in just diving in. My encouragement would be to read both East and West. My encouragement would be to read early patristic and late patristic. So like read the later guys like Boethius and Gregory the Great and some of those, um, and then read the Apostolic Fathers. I think, you know, it's easy to go for like Augustine and some of the big names, but I think reading the full span of, of and then medieval theology. Um, and then I would say another thing to go back to the question we were talking about with that Keith brought up about retrieval. As you read, do everything you can to let them set the agenda. So you're not just using them in your services, but you're saying, what is driving them? It's kind of like in any conversation where you want to really try to understand the other party on their own terms. And uh, I, I, would, I would say that will be a fascinating journey and adventure for any person who embarks on it. <laughs> Amen. I think I think that's great advice. I think that's great advice. And I uh, I always joke that I bought the Internecine Fathers on ebook for about three bucks, which is probably a dollar American. Uh, and, and you know this giant well normally would be a several volume collection. It's you know which Gavin uh, has behind him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah guys, guys, this has been an absolute thrill. Uh, thanks for being part of this experiment that Austin and I cooked up here. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Joe, why don't you tell us where people can go to to find out more about what you're doing, and then Gavin, you can do the same, and then we'll uh, we'll close this off. Sure. Um, uh, officially, you know, my blog is shamelesspopery.com. <laughs> I work at School of Faith, schooloffaith.com, and I've got stuff coming out in print, and I'm really bad at promoting in any single place. So uh, there's not a good answer to the question because of my <laughs> own incompetence. <laughs> Oh, geez. Gavin, what about you? Are you more competent than Joe? <laughs> Probably not. But um, yeah, I'll just mention and, and and thank you all so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it. And I, I'm really, really grateful for it, truly. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I just started a YouTube channel about five months ago. So it's very fresh and, and new. And I'm finding a lot of joy in engaging in that kind of space. I'm not quite as popular as some of who are like like Austin over there, but um, I, I I have a lot of joy in that, and it's called Truth Unites. So people might check that out, and then I my website is just gavinortland.com. People can see more about books and other things there. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you so much for being a part of this uh, absolute pleasure. We've all mentioned uh, future episodes, future conversations. Maybe I think it'd be fantastic, and listeners, viewers would love that. So. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everyone, for joining us, uh, whether it's on podcasts, on audio, on, on video, on, on, on uh, Austin's channel. Thanks, guys. It's been a trip. Thank, thanks so much for hosting this. And thanks, Gavin. You were great talking to you. And you guys had great questions, Austin and Keith. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to be continued. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Same. Looking forward to next time, too. It's really a pleasure.